Well, thank you very much. It's always a pleasure to be here. I think this is the third or possibly the fourth time I've been here with one of Anna's things. Um, this is a work in progress, and that's a polite way of putting it. It's at a fairly early stage. Um, so it's going to be a bit breathless, or I'm going to have to compress as I go along, because it's one of those cases where I haven't really had time to make what I'm saying shorter or concise enough. So I'm just going to start with some... These are the general questions that are going to frame, I hope, frame what I'm going to be saying. Uh, and you can just read those through for yourself. They're not very difficult. Uh, the general uh, idea really has to do with... Well, one of the basic ideas has to, is concerned with... Uh, the third of those things, how the powers of the soul, or how powers in general to be conceptualised, and particularly how the powers of the soul to be conceptualised and distinguished, which is roughly speaking the second of those issues. Because, of course, the Stoics differed from other ancient theorists in what they took to be the province of the psyche, what they took to be the province of the soul, restricting it basically only to the higher functions. Um, not agree with Aristotle that it was all right to call the vegetative functions, uh, metabolism and reproduction largely, which we share as plants, as parts of the soul. In some sense, this is a purely terminological disagreement, although they did have some reasons for it. And part of what I'd be trying to get a little bit clearer about today is the question of just what are terminological, purely terminological disagreements or differences of emphasis, and what are really specific um, distinctions of theoretical commitment. Okay, so here are the more specific ones I'm going to concentrate on by way of a series of texts. Um, first of all, are the psychic affections powers themselves or epiphenomenal upon or consequent upon other powers? And that's an issue that divides, at any rate, if Posidonius, a late and somewhat heretical, well, not that, um, somewhat heretical Stoic is to be trusted. That's a distinction that is to be within Stoicism. Are they predominantly cognitive or predominantly affective or both? And I'll say a little bit more about what I mean by these terms. These terms are rather, obviously rather slippery and we need to be careful about trying to get clear as to what they precisely mean. Passion, affection translates the Greek pathos, which as I'm sure you know is uh, a peculiarly protean term even by Greek standards. Galen spends a long time trying to dissect the various meanings of it. Um, but one of its meanings or semantic ranges covers roughly what we mean when we talk about the emotions, if we, indeed we have a clear sense of what we mean when we talk about the emotions. So uh, there, are, there are a large number of indeterminacies involved in, in what's going on here. So uh, can the existence of irrational affections and their motivational force be given an explanation purely in terms of the rational faculty and its failings, that's Chrysippus's view, or must we invoke other sources of non-rational motivation? And crucial to that is motivation. I'll say more about that, obviously, as we go along. Um, does psychic affection, as, as opposed to bodily affection, and psychic here, of course, is, 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 is I mean that to go with tes psukes or psukikon. Um, so what counts as psychic, of course, will depend upon what you take the range of the soul to be. But does psychic affection always involve rational assent to an evaluative presentation or impression, a fantasia? Or can it have independent sources and be the origin of non-rational impulses and motivations? And that's really going to be the crucial thing that divides, and divides in different ways, the various people whose views I'm going to be trying to sketch and articulate and navigate between the relationships of today. 
And finally, this is all relevant, of course, among other things, to the proper understanding of psychic conflict, acrosia. How do we account for the apparent phenomenon of being pulled in more in more than one direction? Which is a particular problem, of course, for the Stoics with their unitary conception of the rational soul, and in particular for someone like Chrysippus, who takes that very strongly and seriously. Okay, first of all, and I don't know how much I can presume upon your knowledge about this, but I'm going to do this all very quickly. I'm setting up a sort of background in Stoic metaphysics and cosmology here. Uh, so uh, we're going to the, to, to the very basics of the uh, view of, uh, of the way the world is. Two fundamental principles, something which acts and something which undergoes. Topoium topascon, and of course topascon is cognate with pathos in its very general sense. That which undergoes is what they call unqualified substance, apoios usia, or apoios hule sometimes. That which acts is reason, or logos in it, namely God. That's a really standard set of commitments. So the divine permeates the cosmos, it's the rational component of the cosmos, although rational parts in a fairly etiolated sense. But the rationality, in some sense or another, pervades the entire universe and is in whole and is in total identical with God. Is a fairly unwavering Stoic commitment. Um, secondly, uh, there are—I'll I'll just summarise this. There are basically two sorts of material substance. Everything for the Stoics is material, or at least everything capable of causal interaction is material. Um, there are two sorts of material substance. Roughly speaking, passive substance, which they associate with. Uh, um, earth and water, what is wet and dry, and active substance, which they associate with fire and air, and the qualities um, hot and cold. And it's the latter two in mixture, in proportion, sometimes in very tight mixture. So you have um, you have uh, interacting effects of heat and cold in their pneuma, their fiery air, their breath, which does an awful lot of work, it's those things that are the basic active powers in the universe. So I'm introducing this simply to give some idea of what the basic power is. Okay, um, And that's just saying some of the things that I've talked about. Heat, number four, says heat is fundamental to life. Okay, And number five talks about the activity and the passivity of the elements. Okay, I'm doing all this a bit breathlessly because I want to get on to the meaty stuff and spend enough time for that, I hope. So we have a particular concept here, the dunamis synecticae, which I've translated structuring power. Synecticas is a terribly difficult adjective to translate in these contexts. Um, often cohesive, long and sadly used sustaining, which is quite good in certain contexts, but not in others. Basically, no one piece of uh, terminology really does justice to it. You have to think of it as a term of art. Cohesive, containing, um, uh, sustaining, structuring, all of these capture some of what's going on. But I'm concerned here with the idea of there being a dynamis which literally holds things together, gives uh, formless matter um, shape and form, shape and structure. Uh, and that is the pneumatic substance, this substance which is made of pneuma, this dynamical mixture of air and fire. And the mixture, of course, since these are Stoics we're talking about, is a through-and-through mixture, the famous dehollocrasis. It's not a, a mixture of the juxtaposition of small elemental bits. It's an absolutely complete intermixture of um, substances. But an intermixture such that the individual substances retain their own identity in the mixture. That's what differentiates it from Aristotelian mixture, I suppose. Uh, 
And here again in, in, in seven, you've got uh, just a, a development of this thought, namely that um, earth and water, the passive elements, don't structure themselves or anything else, but they preserve their integrity only by sharing in the pneumatic and fiery power. But air and fire, because of their tensility, eutonia, and that's a term that's going to crop up in a later context, also difficult to translate, can maintain themselves, and by blending through and through with the other two, provide them with tension, tonos, and stability and substantiality. And this notion of tension is also a fundamental Stoic notion. Um, finally, divine intelligence permeates the universe, but to different parts to a greater or lesser degree, um, things like this table, only to the extent that it holds it together. That's still a function of the divine reason or logos, but of course in a very attenuated form. Note number nine, intelligence has many powers. The tenor kind, that's just the bit, the, the thing that holds things together, um, which rocks and stones have. The, the, the natural, that corresponds to Aristotle's vegetative soul concept. Um, lower levels of life, what we share with plants. The psychic, very bad translation, of course, but associated with soul, um, which, of course, for the Stoics, only, as I say, means the higher functions, perception, um, initiation of voluntary movement, ascent, impulse, reason, calculation, and so on and so forth. And look at the, if you look at the last line, it says, soul is nature, physis, which has also inquired things, fantasia and hormone, impression and impulse. But this is also shared by irrational animals. Now, that's um, not invariably uh, suggested by our sources. Some of our sources suggest that only uh, rational animals have fantasia and pulse. Um, I'm inclined to suppose that that amounts to a difference of emphasis and a difference between saying, as it were, having it in the full or properly developed sense, which is only um, which is proper to animals, and having something of that sort which even animals can have. But how you pass that out is controversial and, in a sense, doesn't much matter. This is just filling out some of the same sorts of things. Um, well, we can talk about the reliability of some of these sources. It's clearly a, a matter of interest and importance. I'm not going to say very much about that, except in certain cases in regard to Galen's reliability. Um, not so much as a reporter, but as an interpreter. Uh, so here again, we've got... The distinction between, roughly speaking, self-movers um, and those which are only moved by other things. Um, but among the self-movers, some are moved out of themselves, others by themselves. The Stoics were very fond of these distinctions um, rendered in terms of prepositions. Um, and they're nearly always terms of art, so you have to decode them. Uh, the, the former being the soulless things, i.e. the purely vegetative things and the other ones with soul, they literally move by themselves. They're literally self-movers. There's something that is literally uh, uh, describable in terms of self-motion, which is not true in the case of the um, plants. They are moved by themselves when an impression occurs within them which calls forth an impulse. So here again, there seems to be a commitment to, to saying, so at least at some level, there's impression and impulse uh, in any animal capable of, 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 of voluntary self-movement. A rational animal, i.e. us, however, in addition to its impressionistic nature, has reason which passes judgment on impressions, rejecting some and accepting others, in order that the animal may be guided accordingly. And this, again, is very basic stoic action theory, uh, the details of which, of course, are controversial. But uh, what distinguishes uh, human, volitional, fully rational action 
from the goal-directed action of other animals is that there's an intervening stage of assent to the content of a presentation. And it's only when assent to the content of a, of a presentation, a presentation or impression of a particular sort, one which encodes a certain evaluative uh, description of things, occurs that you get rational action. Okay. Finally, and this is, uh, I don't really need to do much about this, the fundamental state metaphysics, the full genera, sometimes misleadingly called the categories, whatever underlies, um, that can be thought of in more than one way, following Aristotle, um, as there are two ways in which you can be the subject of predication, roughly speaking. Um, the qualified, commonly qualified, roughly speaking, corresponds to um, general form, species form, if you like, being human, peculiarly qualified, being me or being you. Um, but these are, as it were, properties that determine the identity of substances in Aristotle's sense. Uh, then you have these uh, two other um, categories, if you like. Uh, I, I don't like that terminology. General is better. Disposed, in a way, poser con, and relatively disposed, prostate poser con. And something is disposed in a certain sort of way if it has, unsurprisingly, a particular dispositional property in regard to something or other. It's an internal property, it's an internal power uh, that gets um, uh, actualized only under certain circumstances, but it's crucial that it's internal, it's something that genuinely belongs to the individual. Whereas relative disposition is a weaker concept, um, which um, is not a property that intrinsically belongs in some sense to the um, individual in question, uh, such as being to the left of somebody or something like that. And I won't bother with the quote underneath that. So the Stoics, and everyone who considers themselves to be body, collect its powers as qualities in the substrate. Um, this, of course, is Iamblichus's language, but it's, um, it's, it's not unreasonable, I think. Um, they posit soul as the substance already underlying the powers. So soul in, 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 um, is the substrate in question, and the powers are the properties of the soul. The soul is body, it's physical, it's bodily. So to have a soul isn't just simply to have a set of attributes or a set of abilities, as on one interpretation the Aristotelian view has it. It is to have, it is to have a certain kind of body, but it's also to have a certain kind of body disposed in a certain sort of way. And those are where the individual um, uh, powers of the soul derive from, or perhaps rather should be characterised as. Passage 13 is important only to show that um, Galen, at any rate, and this, no, this is perfectly straightforward, rejects, uh, rejects the existence of a multiplicity of general powers of the soul, or general uh, loci of motivation. Uh, Chrysippus abolishes the appetitive and the competitive, or spirited if you prefer, um, uh, powers. Now there's a distinction here, though, uh, between him, uh, Chrysippus, that is, and Aristo of Chios, Aristotle holds that virtue is radically a single thing. This is a question, of course, of the proper interpretation of the thesis of the unity of the virtues, called by many names because of relative disposition. It's one and the same thing, but it simply um, uh, manifests itself differently in different circumstances. Uh, Chrysippus uh, denies that. He says it's not a matter of relative disposition, the fourth of the genera, but in qualitative variation of the substances with which they belong, i.e. it has to do with differentiations in the third of the genera. So there are genuinely different powers, individuable within the overall structure, 
which are, as it were, sub-powers of the basic power, but which are only actualized in certain circumstances. It's a weaker conception of the unity of the virtues than the one that Aristo subscribes to, which is the strongest you can possibly get. Although, of course, it's uh, not as weak as the idea that the virtues are inter-entailing or something of that sort. It's still a fairly strong conception, and that's going to matter too. Okay, distinguishing the powers. Some say they're distinguished by a difference in the underlying bodies, again, by dispositions of the underlying bodies. In this case, the underlying body being the substance of the uh, of the uh, commanding faculty of the rational self. There's also this view that uh, a sequence of different breaths, pneumata, extends from the commanding faculty, some to the eyes, others to the ears, and others to the sense organs. This is their equivalent, I suppose, of the, of the sensory nervous system. Um, uh, other powers are differentiated by a peculiarity of quality in regard to the same substrate, in the same way as an apple has in the same body both sweetness and fragrance. So too the commanding faculty combines in the same body these distinct uh, faculties, impression, ascent, impulse and reason. So there are two different ways in which things can be differentiated, by the way in which they ramify and by internal distinctions, distinctions internal to the rational soul itself. Although, again, the relation between the uh, instrumental sequences of pneuma, the, the, the pneumata that stretch out to the external sense organs, which are the conduits by which impressions are carried to the commanding faculty and the commanding faculty itself, those two are matters of disagree or dispute or disagreement. And here's an example of what I mean, and this will become, I'll try and reintroduce this in a uh, in a relevant way later on, a disagreement between Cleanthes and Chrysippus as to what walking is, how properly to characterise walking. Cleanthes said it was pneuma extending from the commanding faculty to the feet. Chrysippus, that it was the commanding faculty itself. Now, both of these you might think are rather peculiar. Surely walking is a matter of actually getting somewhere. But the point is just this, that Cleanthes at least is saying that crucially involved in the definition, if you like, of walking, the causal definition of walking, is this fact of the ramification of the, of the pneuma to the feet, which is doing all the work. After that, everything else is passive response to these um, active um, ingredients that are coming from a decision of the rational soul mediated via the ramified pneuma. Um, Chrysippus is far more radical. He says it's just the volitional decision that counts. Everything else is purely instrumental. He's not saying at all that there isn't this pneuma ramifying to the feet. He's just saying we shouldn't bring that into the account of what walking, considered purely and simply as a volitional action, consists in. All that matters is an act, perhaps a complex act, perhaps more than one act, but really one fundamental act of the commanding faculty itself. And finally, there's this distinction that's worth just bearing in mind, um, between purely bodily affections, somatic infections, uh, affections as they would say, they occur, uh, and, and locational questions, they actually occur in the affected regions. So if I kick you in the shins and your shin bruises, that's a bodily affection and it's taking place in your shin. But the reaction that you have to it um, of various forms, that's taking place in the commanding faculty itself. Okay. So let's concentrate on impression and impulse. These are central features of the stoic action theory. Uh, so um, 
The commanding faculty produces impressions, ascents, perceptions and impulses. That produces is maybe a little bit misleading. They're not, of course, suggesting that these impressions are purely the, the work of the commanding faculty and nothing else. In a very straightforward sense, they're received from the outside on standard Stoic theory. We are impressed by the properties of, it, of the external bodies that we perceive, and if everything's in working order, that impression maintains and correctly reports the actual characteristics of the, of the um, object itself, but the causal dependency runs from the object to our impression of it. So what it is to produce here is, you know, production, as I say, is a, is a slightly misleading way of putting it, but that the commanding faculty has more than a merely passive role in, in relation to, to impressions is not something that uh, I think any Stoic is going to deny, including, as it turns out, Posidonius. And here we have the uh, famous image of the seven parts stretching out like the tentacles of a, the tentacles of a slightly deficient octopus to different parts of the, of the body. That's just the, the penumerary that we're talking about earlier on. Now, here's one of those passages which seems to suggest... Uh, no, it actually doesn't, sorry. Uh, this reiterates the claim that uh, uh, impression and impulse are common to all animals in some sense. And here we get the standard causal direction. The impression is formed by the approach of an external object which strikes the mind through sensation. Pretty clear which way the causation is going there. Impulse is formed by the tonic power of the mind. Um, that's a, uh, a tensile power of the mind. That's a, a technical term which I'm not going to spend any time elucidating now, but I can talk a bit more about it if you want to later. By stretching this out through sensation, the mind grasps its object and goes towards it it's a two-way process. It's conceptualized that there's an input process resulting in some sort of impression, as a result of which, as a result of a rational process, at least in rational animals, or some equivalent in non-rational animals, there's a movement in the other direction, and going outwards to seize something. And this, this last passage uh, is an example of what I mean by saying that there's room for having... Uh, a broader than an hour conception of impulse, uh, the broad one uh, 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 occurring, uh, being common to all animals, the narrow one being specific to rational animals. And of course, one question precisely is going to be, is it the case that, even in the case of rational animals, they are too, they too are uh, subject to, under certain circumstances, non-rational impressions and corresponding impulses? And that is going to be what I take to be a serious uh, point of discussion. Okay, so we're finally on the affections, the pathy themselves. I, I, I originally translated passion, I quite like passion in a certain sense, because it does, uh, it seems to straddle at least some of the different meanings of the Greek in English. But I chose the more neutral affection just because I don't want to insinuate any, uh, uh, any particular interpretation just by the process of translation. So here's a, 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 a basic account of what we mean by impulse. It's a movement of reason towards something or away from something. Affection now is excessive impulse. Pleonadzuse homo. That's going to become an important piece of terminology. Or one which oversteps the measures of reason. Or an impulse which is carried away and disobedient to reason. And again, it's not clear how far these things are supposed to be genuine alternatives or merely different ways of saying the same thing. I think there was actual internal disagreement among the Stoics about that too. 21 introduces the notion that uh, 
an affection is irrational allogos. I've translated allogos as irrational. Again, it straddles irrational and non-rational. Galen makes a big play of this. Hello, Richard. How nice to see you. Excuse me, sorry. Got the time wrong. And there's more than one way in which something can be allogos. It can be allogos because it's just not the sort of thing of which it makes sense to predicate reason at all. In other words, a brick is allogos. Or it can be allogos in the sense that it's... um, uh, it's uh, in the sense that it exhibits a, a deformity or a, um, an inadequacy of reason. It's irrational in that sense. And uh, as I say, Galen makes a, a lot of play of distinguishing between those things to try and show that uh, Chrysippus contradicts himself. I don't think he successfully does that, but it is important to bear in mind that there are, good, there are different possible senses of allogos, irrationality in play. And I'm just going to use irrational here to cover that. When they call them, this is to say, pathy um, affections, fresh opinions, and the fresh is going to be important, prosphatos. Uh, opinion is used instead of weak position, these are all technicalities, and fresh instead of, or in place of, the stimulus of irrational contraction or swelling. Irrational being equivalent to disobedient to reason, and that is Chrysippus's gloss, as we can tell from that fragment there. Um, and contractions and swellings, these irrational contractions and swellings, and precisely how they're to be conceptualised is going to be important too. For every affection is overpowering, since people frequently see that it's not appropriate to do this, but are carried away by the intensity as though by a disobedient horse. Um, of course, this is going, going back to Plato's Phaedrus, famous uh, metaphor of the charioteer and the uh, good and the bad horse, constantly being... Um, re-invoked in these contexts, we'll see it again, and are induced to do it. Now, that's an important claim, that latter claim. Uh, People frequently see that it's not appropriate to do this, but are carried away by the intensity. Here, really for the first time, we're obviously within the ambit of akrasia, uh, intemperate action. Cases where you do something even though part of you really doesn't want to do it. And this is a particular problem for Chrysippus, particularly given a, a, a particular feature of what he takes um, a, a pathos in the appropriate sense to be, namely that it involves not merely assent um, and rational assent, but endorsement, if you like, on the part of the assenter to the effective content of it. And that doesn't seem to be something that can um, very well fit or be squared with. Uh, the idea that what we're doing here, among other things, is dealing with acrosia. Okay, this too is general stoicism, although the precise details are controversial. There are four basic pathy, they actually come in two different, uh, two different subclasses, um, appetite, pleasure, fear and distress. And in a sense, appetite and fear are fundamental and they're accompanied by pleasure and distress in the ways in which those... Um, um, subsequent unpackings in the second and the third point are supposed to um, make clear. Uh, there are disagreements about this, and in some cases you can't tell whether the text is right. It's tempting to amend the text because it looks as though somebody's saying something that's really inconsistent with somebody else, and sometimes with themselves. Um, so we've got problems with uh, precisely how these things are supposed to work. But um, I'm just going to leave that aside for the time being. So you've got... Um, after speaking two components, you've got the conative component, which are associated with appetite and fear, the things that actually make you try and do something, pursuit and avoidance, and you've got the associated affective qualities, if you like, um, which are 
being uh, tokened here by uh, terms pleasure and distress. So we've already got a, a, a suitably complex picture emerging as to what these psychic affections are really supposed to be. And I call this physical or possibly psychophysical correlates for uh, reasons that should become apparent. It's not quite clear how to draw the boundaries between the, the psychical in the stoic sense and the physical, what counts as physical and what doesn't, what's a purely bodily affection, such as um, the damage to my shin when you kick it, and what counts as a psychophysical. So distress is an irrational contraction. Um, what of? Well, that's not entirely clear. The soul, in some sense, but it's not clear exactly what's going on there. Or a fresh opinion that something bad is present, at which people think it right to be contracted. That's the element of endorsement, the um, affective, affective component, if you like, that I mentioned earlier on. And then we get that um, worked out in the case of actions. And if you, if you, if you notice, that, if you notice that about pleasure, pleasure, of course, being the um, being the uh, uh, counterpart to distress also has this uh, uh, internal component of being thinking that it's right to be swollen or affected in this way. You feel elated by the prospect of something or other, and you think it's a good thing that you're elated. And both of those components seem to be necessary, at least on this account of what a pathos, in its full in its in its in its full specificity, is supposed to mean. Okay, um, now. So I've got a lot of text to get through. I'm going to just be summarising quite a lot of it. Because I do want to try and pull some of this together into something like a general account, or at least a, a general sketch, a sketch of a general account at the end. So now we're turning to, 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 to Galen again. Um, Galen is notoriously, if, as I say, if not an unreliable reporter, at least sometimes an unreliable interpreter. You can't always take what he says at face value. I sometimes think the extent to which he's un unreliable has been overplayed, but... That he is unreliable in some cases is, uh, I think, uncontestable. And in, it, his unreliability particularly manifests itself when he claims that what people are doing is self-contradictory. That's one of his favourite, as it were, top way of argument. So and so simply contradicting themselves or sometimes contradicting the evident facts, the Anagos phenomena. But either way, this is a, a very bad thing to do as they shouldn't be doing it. Um, and he tries to convict Chrysippus of self-contradiction of saying things inconsistent with his own doctrines at enormous length in the fourth book of all the doctrines of Hippocrates and Plato, and indeed elsewhere. I mean, uh, so he doesn't merely, doesn't only uh, reject the view that there's no desiderative or spirited power of the soul, no power there, not part, because uh, even somebody like Posidonius, who in some sense, although I'm not quite clear exactly what sense, uh, is inclined to suppose that there are distinct powers, at least powers that are distinct in terms of their causal efficacy associated with desire and the spirit. They're not separately located. They're not diff different parts in that sense. They're still all located in the stoic unitary cardiac soul. But anyway, um, Chrysippus denies even that. Um, but, but he even explains in detail their affections and assigns them to a single place in the body. Well, as I say, that's... Um, that's common to others. That's common to Stoics, even relatively unorthodox ones like Posidonius. But, and this is supposed to be a contradiction, of course, he's found to hold this view no longer, at times writing as if he were on both sides, at times as if he thought the soul had neither a spirited nor a desiderative power. So he just doesn't see, he, there's, there's no consistency there. And this, I think, is exaggerated. For in, in, the, in his explanation of the definition of the affections, 
He, he implies that some irrational power in the soul is the cause of the, of the affections. Now, uh, the question is what is meant by imply there. And for this to be remotely plausible, I think, it has to be read very weakly. It has to mean he's committed to it without even realising that he's committed to it. Not that anything that he actually says logically implies um, any such thing. Now, let's concentrate on this definition of distress, the is what, affective um, concomitant of fear on the standard Stoic model. A fresh opinion, prosphatos dox, something bad is present. So here he mentions only the rational part of the soul, admitting, uh, sorry, omitting the appetitive and spirited. Well, of course, so far so good. But, so the claim goes, in some of his next definitions, he writes things more consistent with Epicurus and Zeno than with his own doctrines. Uh, Galen is very concerned to differentiate Zeno's view of the emotions from Chrysippus's, following, as he says, Posidonius, although again it's not clear how fair that is to Posidonius' own report. I'm inclined to think that probably is all right. Um, for in defining distress, and I'm tempted in fact to read fear here rather than distress, just the uh, reasons of the technical terminology, he says that it's a shrinking at what is thought to be something to avoid. And he says that pleasure is a swelling up at what is thought to be something to pursue. Shrinkings and swellings, as well as diffusions and contractions, which he sometimes also mentions, are affections of the irrational power. So that's a claim that Galen's making. Chrysippus has to make it. Other people have made it too. But of course, Chrysippus is precisely not saying that. The question is whether we can make sense of him not saying that or how he not says that, how he, do, how he uh, avoids saying that, um, and whether what he does say um, in avoiding saying that is, um, is uh, adequate as an account of these very complex phenomena that we're dealing with. Again, this is a, an allegation of self-contradiction. He himself admits, again, presumably in the weak sense, a necessary condition of making sense of what he says, that some power in men's selves other than the rational is the cause of the affections. We may see this in passages where he gives slackness, atonia, and weakness of the soul as the cause of our acting incorrectly. Now here, um, you've, you've got to be very charitable to Galen to, 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 to make this come out as anything other than a complete misrepresentation. Um, what Chrysippus clearly tries to do, and clearly thinks he's doing, is giving an account of the occurrence of these things, affections, in terms not of some other power, but in terms of the weakness or inadequacy of the single operative power, namely the power of rational critical judgment. It's because that power is weakened in some way that the judgments, get, that the judgments upon, uh, upon which the affections supervene, or alternatively, if you take the strong Chrysippian account, which is parallel to his account of walking to Cleanthes, are identical with these decisions. It's only then that's what the causal story is supposed to involve, not some other power. Okay. So the crucial question is, can, we, can he get away with this? Can we allow him to do that? Uh, so some he attributes to faulty judgment, others to slackness and weakness of the soul, just as correct judgments are guided by correct judgment, uh, uh, orthochrisis, and by the soul's tensility. That's that eutonia we've already seen earlier in a quite different context. Uh, he says that there are times when we abandon decisions because the soul's tension gives in and doesn't persist until the end, or fully execute the commands of reason. So reason issues the commands. Uh, that produces some sort of uh, uh, appropriate response, direct 
response in the uh, in the uh, cell's internal structure itself, characterized by swellings or contractions or various other physical movements, and I, th I take it these are to be taken non-metaphorically uh, within the cell itself, but sometimes, and these are the things that are really, as it were, doing the work, or, or these are the things that are really instrumental in doing the work, let's put it that way, uh, even for Chrysippus, but sometimes as a result of simply uh, uh, internal feature facts about those structures, their tendency to get tired or to lose their grip or something like that, uh, the commands are not fully executed, even if the volition is still there to do it. So that's how things go wrong. And again, this is, this is, this is characterized by Chrysippus in terms of a weakness internal to the workings of the rational soul, not in terms of interference in the workings of the rational soul by powers which have their origin outside the rational cell itself. Now, I'm not going to bother too much uh, about any of those things. Um, this is just uh, fairly standard. Uh, Chrysippus famously denies that children are emotional, which does seem a bit odd to anyone who's ever actually had a child. Uh, you have to construe emotional in a rather particular way, I think, in order to uh, get that result out. But I think... Well, I, I think I, I think there is a way of doing that for Chrysippus. You just have to build in a great deal of cognitive content into the into the emotional state itself. Uh, now, whether that amounts, as I said before, as to anything more than simply a difference in terminology is a further question. Okay, let's turn to Posidonius. So, Posidonius, on Galen's account, is uh, someone who rejects both Chrysippus and Zeno. Um, I'm inclined to, to agree with John Cooper on this. John Cooper produced a classic article on Posidonis on the emotions almost 20 years ago now, um, in which he was pretty, pretty harsh on Galen, perhaps a little bit too harsh on Galen, um, but I think very largely right in the way in which he characterised Posidonius's innovations and uh, was right to minimise the extent to which Posidonius was uh, being heretical from an orthodox early Stoic point of view. Although, nonetheless... He's still being um, heretical. Okay, I'll try and say a little bit more about that. But anyway, this is Galen's presentation of it. Uh, he contradicts, he contradicts um, Zeno and many other... Uh, uh, this is Chrysippus, contradicts Zeno himself, of course he's self-contradictory, um, and many other Stoics who hold that it is not the soul's judgments which are affections, but rather the irrational contractions, cowerings, pangs, swellings and diffusions, all sort of semi-technical terms, many of which deriving from the medical tradition, which follow them. Um, so there's a, there's, there is a dispute here. How do we, what do we identify the emotions with? Is it the judgment itself which produces these things, or is it the things produced by the judgment? But in some sense, that's, as I say, simply a difference of terminology at most of degree. We've still got roughly the same structure. It's just a question of what we say, what we think is the pathos properly so-called. However, Posidonius distanced himself from both of these things, thinking affections to be neither judgments nor consequent upon judgments, but rather to arise from the spirited and desiderative powers, in complete accord with the ancient account. That's, of course, Galen's gloss, I think. Why so? Why do you need separate spirited and desiderative powers, not as I've stressed parts, but powers, um, active causal principles, if you like? Well, because... He asked Chrysippus and his followers, 
what's the cause of the excessive impulse, the pleonazuse hormone? How does this impulse become excessive? Surely something must make it excessive. What could it be? Well, how could it be reason? Because reason can't step outside its own pragmata and its own measures. How could reason produce something inconsistent with reason? So clearly there's some, something else going on, some other irrational power, which is the cause of the impulse exceeding the measures of reason, just as the cause which makes running exceed the measures of choice is irrational, non-rational, namely the body's weight. And that's a reference to a famous claim of Chrysippus's, of course, where he said, or he's trying to give an account of just what a, an excessive impulse is. He says it's, it's like the impulse to run um, where um, the impulse itself produces something which can't be immediately controlled. If you're running, you can't just stop as soon as you want to. Whereas if you're walking, you can. Um, Galen's, and possibly also Posidonius's response to this, is to say, well, the reason why you can't stop when you want to, when you're running, is because of the body's momentum. It's because of a purely, it's because of some other causally operative force, which interferes with the immediate operation of reason. Now, uh, it's controversial whether... Posidonius or Galen have got that right, or they're just simply misunderstanding the force of Chrysippus's point. Um, I'm inclined to think they may be doing, they, they, both of these things may be true. Chrysippus may have been making a different point, but nonetheless, there's still some point to Galen and Posidonius saying what they're saying. There are cases in which um, you can't just rein in the results of impulse um, when you want to, because the results of impulse take on a life of their own in some, in, in, in some way. How can that be the case? Well, only because there's, there are other causally uh, efficient factors at play. It's not something that can simply be reducible to reason, to its decisions, to its deficiencies, plus a little bit more in the way of machinery that I'm hoping to get onto in a moment. If affections are the result of powerfully endorsed evaluations, why don't sages experience them? Why are sages not subject to pathos? Um, one thing that... Um, uh, one way out that Galen supplies on Chrysippus's behalf, and this poss possibly, this certainly I think comes from Posidonius, and it may even come from Chrysippus, that plenazuse um, horme, uh, excessive impulse, comes not simply from a misevaluation of things, supposing, say, for instance, that wealth is a good, but from, from supposing something stronger, namely that it's the supreme good or the only good. <laughs> it's only that that gives you the really powerful affective component and and, 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 and the consequences thereof. It's only if you think that wealth is the be-all and end-all that you will be heavily distressed when you don't get it or don't get enough of it or something like that. Now, the point here is that, well, um, suppose that that's right. And suppose that pathos, strong emotion of this sort, is the consequence of um, uh, feeling that you're either in the presence of or not going to be able to get something which is genuinely good. Well, the Stoic sage thinks that something is genuinely good, namely virtue. When the Stoic sage acquires virtue, why won't the Stoic sage also be in a condition of extreme elation? Exactly the sort of thing they're not supposed to be. Uh, not, a bad, not, a, not a bad question in some ways. Uh, secondly, and uh, this is not really related in some way, appeals to weakness. Chrysippus wants to appeal to the asthenia of the, of the rational faculty. Won't do the trick. And this is because, and I will look at this, this is a bit after the moreover towards the bottom, two people may have the same weakness and receive a similar impression of good or evil. Whether or not that's a, a, a correct evaluation or not is a further, is a further and irrelevant question. 
and one incur affection, i.e. have these um, further consequences, and the other not, or one less and the other more, and sometimes the weaker who suppose, supposes that what's befallen him is greater, is unmoved, and the same individual under the same conditions sometimes effectively moves. So there's all sorts of uh, different ways in which this, this can turn out. It's not simple, there's no simple um, relation between weakness and um, the having of certain affective reactions. Now one might ask at this point a pertinent question to ask Posidonia says, well, how do you know how weak somebody is? What are, presumably you're going to have to have some independent way of deciding on the degree of weakness and then say it's not properly correlated. He doesn't tell us that. Second uh, objection, the Chrysippus' appeal to fresh opinion. It's the fresh opinion of, of something nasty in your vicinity that causes fear and hence distress. Um, this, isn't, this is insufficiently explanatory. What matters rather is familiarity with the situation. Because again, you can have a fresh opinion. Uh, it can seem to you suddenly right now that something unpleasant is in your vicinity. But that may not be as much as it might under other circumstances. And uh, uh, Posidonius suggests that if you're habituated to this, you'll be less likely to experience following uh, the, 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 the consequent affective states. So again, it can't just be a matter of assent to a particular impression or assent of a particular type. And he even suggests that one way of training yourself is to try and imagine in advance all sorts of unpleasant things so you get used to the idea that before they're there and you'll be less, less seriously affected by them. Now, here again, as you see I was doing this rather rapidly so irrational is misspelled. Uh, here's another question. Why, do the, why does the affective state, your feeling of elation, your feeling of being miserable, your desire to hurt the other guy, your desire to get hold of something. Why does that go away after a while? Even though um, it may well still be the case that you think it's a good thing, or not, as the case may be. Um, and the idea that um, your, the effective correlates of um, decisions of a certain sort can be independent of your, of your or, or judgments of a certain sort, can be independent of your, um, uh, uh, of the judgments themselves, in the sense that the judgments can continue. You continue to, to think what so-and-so has been really mean to you, but lose the desire to smash them around the face. Um, or you can um, uh, uh, realise that it's quite possibly, you're quite possibly mistaken in supposing that somebody's been really mean to you, but nonetheless feel pretty agitated about it. It seems as though there's, a, there's not a direct correlation between what you take to be the case, what you endorse, as it were, your opinions and your active reactions. Uh, now, uh, Posidonius has uh, so, sorry um, now Posidonius' own account is, is given as follows it's because the irrational desire that is its basis i.e. the basis of the affection has become satiated so long, no longer figures into the motivational equation the idea is this these different um, these different motivational loci in the soul which are roughly modelled on Plato, but only, I think, very roughly modelled on Plato. I think Galen overdoes that part of the story. These are, um, uh, these, as it were, have their own goals and desires and so on. And they can be satiated, right? You could have had your fill of your feeling that you want to hit someone around the face, right? Um, it, it's done its work. You've, you, 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 you've satiated that desire. You still think that you were done down, but it's that... Um, that hasn't changed. You haven't changed your rational judgment. But what's happened is the other part of you has had its fill of whatever it is it wants to do and so on.
Um, and of course, that's not a move open to Chrysippus. Um, all he can say is that the instrumental part of the soul, the, the part that's responsible, as it were, for um, moving from the uh, the judgments of the rational part to the execution of things, loses its tonos, loses its kind of fitness. It gets flabby. It can no longer do it. It's again a deficiency account. Well, no better, says Posidonius. Think of this not in terms of the, of the deficiency of one part, but think in terms of the satiety of another part. Maintain the differential loci of, um, of motivation. So these are genuine um, and important and fundamental distinctions in the way in which these things are characterised. Um, uh, again, misspelled in the train. Now, this is, I think, what's, what's peculiar to Posidonius. And, and really, here I'm following John Cooper. The reason for the psychic deviation is not the co-presence of two rational judgments, which is roughly speaking um, uh, the rapid alternation between um, two, two rational judgments, or judgments of the rational soul, although of course one can be irrational in the sense that it, it, uh, it doesn't mean, meet rational norms, uh, which is roughly speaking the Chrysopean model, but the temporary triumph of one conditioned by the effective pull, the holke pathetike, as he calls it. Now, that's the way in which I think Posidonius actually wants to conceptualise these things. There is something going on. There's this definite, independent force, which he calls the affective pull. It's something that's, that's, whose uh, causal power derives from something that's not part of the um, rational uh, part of the soul. What it does is create certain conditions in the rational part of the soul, which affect the way in which the rational part of the soul makes critical judgments, and hence... Um, uh, uh, makes, makes and endorses choices. So that part of the model is not something that's, that's being rejected by Posidonius. There's still a choice going on. It's still a choice of the rational soul. But what matters is there's a crucially important further component injected by this um, pathetic holke, as he talks, as, as, he, as he puts it. I've concealed this, but in, but in, in passage 34, there is actually a, a... I've left out a textual supplement that was put in Delace's edition... Um, after theoretical part, um, which has the effect of distinguishing between a theoretical part and a non-theoretical part. Um, I'm more or less, although not entirely convinced by John Cooper's argument that we don't need to do that. Um, there are, I, I have doubts about that, mostly having to do with the last sentence of this, but um, I don't have time to discuss that at the moment. I say more or less convinced. I'm certainly not convinced by the supplement of the emendation on either grammatical grounds or on grounds of sense. Finally, to say that these different powers, appetitive, calculative, and so on, have different appropriate proprietary ends, um, different ends or chaos to them, is not to say that they're, as it were, appropriate in all senses. It just means that these are the things that are the sorts of things that that thing is supposed to do. Given the overall account of how the animal is supposed to function, it may be the case that it's not appropriate for these other parts to pursue their ends. But they can't be, but they are still natural and they can't simply be wished out of existence. That's roughly how Posidonius puts it. And there's an interesting claim at the end of the, towards the end of the second passage there. Uh, uh, well, actually from just, just after the dots. I think you're quite familiar with the way people are without fear and distress when they've been rationally persuaded that something bad for them is present or approaching. I mean, there can be certain circumstances in which I genuinely believe that something bad is on its way, but I don't feel the appropriate emotions. But 
they have those affections when they get an impression of those things themselves. In other words, when they actually have some, a mental picture of them. It's only when you get something like that, you have a, 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 a mental image that uh, represents the danger in a dangerous form. That's when you start to get the affective responses. So you can sort of assent in a kind of disengaged way to the fact, yes, I'm, uh, uh, something wicked this way comes, but unless you have an, uh, a mental picture of um, Macbeth, it's not going to do anything to you. Um, and he gives uh, some examples of that. Now, whether those are uh, entirely convincing or not is a further question. Okay, I'm going to wrap up very quickly. So, let's just go through this very quickly. Now, this is a, a summary. It's only, a, uh, uh, it's only that of Chrysippus's views. Psychic affections are judgments. They're identical with judgments. Um, it's a reductive view in the ways I've tried to express earlier. They're irrational in the sense that they don't conform to certain rational norms, but they're rational in that they proceed from rational faculty and its proper power. They're proper causes of the subsequent affective states, but such as which but, but those are such as to be properly identified. Sorry, but are such as to properly be identified with them. Right? Um, again, this is part of the reduction. They do bring them about, but that's really what they are in a re reductive sense. The causes of the weakness itself to the rational faculty, which causes mistaken evaluative judgments, are obscure. That's something that Galen plays on and Posidonius plays on in those passages I didn't read. Affective states can dissipate, even though their productive beliefs remain, as a result of the loss of this property. Tonos, strength, and acrasia is in fact the rapid oscillation between two opposing rational endorsements. So that's Chrysippus' view. Um, Oh, this is Posidonius critique. Chrysippus can't, without positing non-rational powers, account for A, the origin of the excessive impulse, and he can't account for B, the, the fact that affective conditions persist even when the associated judgments have been altered and abate even when they remain. And there may be an asymmetry here. It may, um, if, if we allow Chrysippus' account of um, progressive atonia in the... Um, uh, whatever it is that's doing the swelling or the contracting, then we could account for why it was that the affected the the affective states um, abated even when the judgments remained. But it would be hard to see how you could do it the other way around. Be hard to see how you could you could um, have the um, them, them persisting even when the associated judgments have been altered, unless you do it in terms of some sort of internal inertia or something. And see, he can't account for the fact that people weaker in making the are sometimes less moved than the stronger in the same circumstances. Perhaps in the see that's a passage I didn't quote. And to account for all of these things, and several other things as well, facts of acrasia and so on, we must posit effective movements, um, pathetica kinesis, and the effective pull, both having their origin in non-rational sources. Okay, um, and I'm, I'm almost done. One minute more. So, could, can Chrysippus get out of this? And if so, how? Um, could he insist that all emotions, all emotions properly so-called, do arise, and indeed in a sense are, um, judgments, and all involve assent to evaluative impressions? But many judgments are mistaken due to a mistaken account of value, which conditions the evaluative component of the impression. So I mistakenly suppose that wealth is worth pursuing. That in itself colours the way in which the... Um, uh, apparent proximity of wealth which I can get hold of appears to me in the appropriate sort of way, in such a way as to demand assent. But that's a distortion. But it's all a distortion going on in the evaluative part of me. These acts of assent are still acts of the rational soul, and so only one psychic power, albeit with many species as we saw earlier on, is in play. Um, 
There's no, as it were, equivalent sort of non-rational ascent or impulse without ascent or yielding, as the Stoics sometimes put it to um, non-rational forces, that occurs in the rational animal. Finally, is it okay just to say that deficiencies and deviations from a pro are caused, and in a sense wholly caused, by the weakness of the rational, which results in mistaken judgments, etc., etc., etc. Well, finally, a couple of problems. So why are these ascents up to us if how things appear to us is not in our power? That's a sort of Aristotelian thought. Um, but I think it's something which the Stoics in general can deal with because we are the ones who are making the decisions, because while each decision is determined, nonetheless a different outcome is possible, in some sense of possible, although, of course, not possible in precisely the same circumstances and not perhaps not possible for us in these circumstances, conditioned as we are now, but still possible in some important, non-attenuated sense. So the, the, the things in parentheses are supposed to be possible responses to this. Um, how can this account for acrosia as opposed to acrolasia? This is something that there's a, there's a relevant passage on that. And how can we account for the fact that you... That, uh, it's easy enough to show how the acolastic, the person who endorses the wrong, the wrong ends and feels um, in regard to those ends uh, the consequent emotions, we can account for that all right on pretty much any model. But what about acrosia? where it's not the case, seemingly, that the individual endorses the emotive, endorses the, um, uh, endorses the having of the emotive content. Remember those earlier claims that not only do you feel elated, you feel it's okay to be elated. But that's just what the Ocratic doesn't feel. They don't feel it's okay to feel this way. Um, how can we give a proper account of that? Very simply, how can judgment itself be the sole cause of the effective states if it's neither sufficient nor necessary for them, or at least neither sufficient nor necessary for their continuation? And that suggests a possible way out as well. And are we not still, as long as we're not sages, subject to desires and appetites which have their own pre-rational motivational force? And that's exactly why Posidonius um, introduces his so-called effective pull. And I'd better stop there. I was going to have uh, you know, three more to look at. Um, which just simply develop these things. So in a sense, what I've managed to do, and that's what I've really set out to do, so that's all right, is try and um, set out a certain set of relations and possible relations between these different views and in order to be able to better determine what each of them have going for them. Notion being, at least the Posidonius, that added in Galen, that Chrysippus can't give a satisfying, a fully satisfying causal account of the origins, persistence, and indeed the structure of these very complex states, solely in terms of his purely cognitive account of the emotions.